Take your Bible, turn to Matthew chapter 23. Matthew chapter 23, going to tackle the whole chapter. Well, it's one sermon from Jesus, a mini-sermon, so appropriate that I'll try to tackle it in one as well. All right, this is God's Word, is written for you today. Matthew 23, starting in verse 1. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat, so do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do. For they preach, but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders. But they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others. For they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long. And they love the place of honor at feasts and the best Seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others. But you're not to be called rabbi for you have one teacher and you are all brothers. And call no man your father on earth for you have one father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructors for you have one instructor, the Christ. The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled. Whoever humbles himself will be exalted. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. For you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte, and when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. Woe to you, blind guides, who say, if anyone swears by the temple, it's nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. You blind fools, for which is greater, the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred? And you say, if anyone swears by the altar, it's nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, he is bound by his oath. You blind men. For which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? So whoever swears by the altar, swears by it and by everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple, swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven, swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides, straining out a gnat, swallowing a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, 
but you clean the outside of the cup and the plate. But inside they're full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate that the outside also may be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you're full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! You build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. Thus you witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your fathers, you serpents, you brood of vipers. How are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Therefore I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify. And some you will flog in your own synagogues and persecute from town to town so that you may come, so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth. From the blood of righteous Abel, the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. O oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings? And you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Probably a good idea that we pray after that. Lord, we thank you that you've spoken to us in the reading of your word. We ask now that you would speak to us in its preaching. For Christ's sake, amen. I understand that I'm of the age where it's appropriate for me to begin to grow nostalgic about the things of my childhood, uh, but there is an aspect of, uh, I, I miss of my childhood, specifically the cartoons of my childhood. Uh, I understand that the cartoons of my childhood were largely designed by marketing people to sell little plastic figurines. I understand that. It was just a shameless way of trying to get money uh, from kids and from their families. But one of the things that I miss that was so wonderful about my childhood is that you could look at any show or any toy and immediately know, is this a good guy or a bad guy? 
Right? Is this a, a, a girl who's fighting on the good side, or is this a girl who's fighting on the bad side? Because it, it was kind of drilled into people my age and the cartoons that we watched and things like that. That good guys look good in some fashion, and bad guys look bad. Of course, the, the great problem is what did you do when you got your new G.I. Joes or whatever, and the bad guy just looked cooler. Right? Oh no, what do I do? He's the bad guy. He's the one who's supposed to get in trouble and die all the time. Except he's G.I. Joe, so he never dies. There's a sense in which I miss that as a grown-up. I'm old enough now to kind of understand that certainly the world is a much more complicated place than that. Uh, certainly the world is a much more complicated place than just being able to look at someone and immediately instantaneously know, oh, are they one of the good guys or one of the bad guys? Well, what color cowboy hat are they wearing? Pretty obvious. Right? We sorted it out. There is, though, I think a biblical truth that while it, it doesn't perhaps come down to our appearance in, in such a simple fashion, there is an aspect of those that have met with Jesus and have been transformed by Jesus should have the way they live transformed as well. And Paul makes this point all throughout his writings, but particularly in the book of Romans where uh, we read earlier chapters 1, 2, and 3 lay out the bad news, you're a sinner. He then turns into the good news, 4 through 8 really, that yea, Jesus died for you and saves you. Uh, But then the last part of the book is, and because Jesus saves you, he gives you his spirit so that you live differently. So that you look different. So that, as the confession says, and we we talk about in the history of the church a great deal, we're to be made more and more into the image of Jesus. That's what sanctification is. It's being reshaped, not into a better version of ourselves, not into our best life now, but being reshaped into the image of Christ. Which would then kind of beg the question, well, what does that look like? And honestly, in the the South, it's easy for us to say, well, Jesus was a good man, right? He was nice. He was kind. He was gentle. And he was, he is good. He is kind and he is gentle. He was, however, not nice. Don't mistake nice and kind. They're not the same thing. And you get a sermon here, chapter 23, which would have been wonderfully uncomfortable. Remember, he's in the temple at this point. This is the last week uh, before the crucifixion. He's been crowned king by the Jews uh, on Sunday. He's uh, then cleansed the temple on Monday. Then Tuesday through kind of in later into the week, he's been teaching in the temple and doing kind of war with his great earthly enemies. At this point, it's actually gotten so bad that the Pharisees and the Sadducees have kind of lined up together. The cats and dogs have decided to overthrow uh, the Lord Jesus, and both kind of odds that you would never think to be fighting on the same team have joined together to get rid of him. And he's been doing verbal battle with them 
Uh, it's been very intense. They've been trained to trick him after trick him after trick him, and he's defeated them every time uh, until you get to the end there of chapter 22 in one of the most just like almost comical statements. No one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. They're, they are afraid of Jesus, not because they know he could kill them and incinerate them, which he could. They're afraid of his words because he's so wise. And then here, 23, he then turns to the crowd that's gathered there in the temple with him. He turns to the disciples that are there listening. The impression that you get is that after the last kind of repartee, the, the, the Pharisees have probably begun walking away. And you can very easily imagine this entire little mini-sermon is probably delivered at their backs as they walk away. Don't know that part for sure, but the best guess is they're local, but not right there in front of him. And Jesus begins, and in essence, what we have here is an entire mini-sermon over what the bad guys look like. What does it mean to be a bad guy inside God's creation? Now, again, a lot of us, we, we love to kind of do this silly caricature and we go over the top and say, well, what does it mean to be a bad guy? Well, it means to be Hitler, right? Hitler was a bad guy. Yes, he was. You're not wrong. Well, Stalin, he was a bad guy. He killed lots of people. Yeah, no, he did. He killed a lot of people. The interesting thing is those caricatures, those kind of silly over-the-top examples are not what Jesus goes after. Instead, he, he actually defines a person who's much more common, thankfully, than evil world-altering tyrants. Hitler, bad guy, thank the Lord, there haven't been that many of him. This is something that's far more common. And so Jesus delivers the seven woes to the Pharisees. So you're going to get... In the next roughly 24 minutes, a seven-point sermon. Uh, thank you, that was a good joke. I intend to run long and shamelessly so. And I want us to, to look at this really from one kind of one specific perspective. If Jesus has changed me, I really shouldn't look like the bad guys. But maybe, just maybe, I have some habits that I might need to get rid of. That's the way I want you to look at all of these woes, right? If I've been changed by Jesus, perhaps I need to kind of change some of my habits so I look a little bit less like the bad guys. Woe number one, verse 13 Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. This is your uh, introductory statement for six of the seven, uh, identifying who's the ones that he's speaking to. And that's important for us to know because these scribes and Pharisees, are, are, it's really significant. These are not the political or theological liberals. These are not the people who you would catch doing bad things. 
These are not the kind of people that you would catch out murdering each other or stealing each other's uh, cars or whatever version of transport they had. You, You wouldn't find them stealing each other's animals or being angry and poisoning each other's children. These are the good people in society. These are the people that took the law of God so seriously, uh, they had memorized massive chunks of it, they debated it for fun, and they lived with margins all around so that they wouldn't accidentally violate it. A, a, A silly example today would be this would be a person who's so concerned with obeying the law that they drive 10 under the speed limit everywhere they go, right? You ride with that person, one, it's a fairly scary thing once you get to the interstate. But two, the whole time you're thinking, wow, they must really take this seriously if they're willing to drive this slow everywhere. So these are the good people. The moral people, the people that you would look at and think, this is what I want as my neighbor. These are the kinds of people I want to be nanny to my children. These are the school teachers that I want. These are the people that I like to spend time with. And interestingly, verse 13, Jesus begins, whoa, that's a scary term, warning, danger will rob us and bad things are happening and coming, scribes and Pharisees, why? Because you're hypocrites, all of you. Again, not delivered to the bad people, they're not hypocrites, They, they are bad because they act bad and they are bad of heart. The Pharisees, however, on a different take, are actually, quote, quote, the morally good people, at least by the world's standards. But what does Jesus warn them for here, curse them here for? What's the woe? Well, you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. And his explanation, he says, you don't even actually enter in yourself, but instead you stand outside and prevent others from going in. Wow. I mean, that, that, that's pretty serious. I mean, the, the verbal picture he's giving is if we had, you know, a group of, again, moral good Christians that showed up next Sunday and stood outside the door there and said, you can't come into church. But I really need to go to church. Well, sorry, you can't come in. You're not allowed. And he doesn't explain in this section, these two verses, well, how are they doing this specifically? How are they closing off the kingdom of heaven? And we're going to find out really from the introductory verses there in 1 through 12 and what following is that they have so distorted the understanding of who God is that to listen to them is to listen to the lies of the devil. All right, verse 2, Jesus explains, they sit on Moses' seat, means they're kind of the teachers of the law at this point. And because of that, they actually know the law, so do what they teach you to do in verse 3, but don't do what they do. Because they are massive hypocrites. And in fact, actually, their practice is to increase the burdens that people bear instead of increasing love and affection and freedom in God. They want to make themselves look good. Right? They, they pretend to be all spiritual. And in doing so, close off the kingdom of heaven. So, 
Warning number one to them is, well, you have closed off the kingdom of heaven. Uh, Again, listening with the right ears, that means warning to us. How many of us are bringing shame to the name of the Lord Jesus by being a hypocrite? And I don't mean, let me clarify, I don't mean a person that struggles with sin because guess what? That's normal. The only way you get out of that is to die. And we're all going to do that at some point too. No, what I mean here is a person who is we might say almost even contented to have the appearance of being good on one side, but not on the inside. Parents, if you really wanted to find out this, all you have to do is ask your children. Right? These young ones are amazing. God gives them this tremendous ability to sort out hypocrisy so well. You get those little innocent questions, but you said that, didn't you, mommy? Like, oh, yes, I did. Well, number two, Jesus, in similar vein, kind of applies this idea. Verse 15, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, For you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte, but when he becomes a proselyte, proselyte is a a convert, a disciple. For you travel across sea and land to make a single convert, a, a disciple, and when he becomes a disciple, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. Meaning your your hypocrisy, your corruption, it's contagious. This is one of the things that I, I think I have always been surprised by. It, it, two decades of working in the church in various fashion and, and employment, and I'm always amazed at how we as Christians, and self-included in this regard, think that somehow we can manage to keep our sin contained in a little box. Like, hey, I'm, I'm a good person in all of these areas here, but I have this sin, and I'm okay to leave it kind of here, tucked away in this neat little space, and it'll stay there. Not realizing that it, by nature, sin is contagious. It's in, infecting. It's transformative. It leaches in and changes how we think and how we feel, and it impacts our relationships, and it impacts each other, and it impacts the church. I've been doing this long enough now to be able to watch, to trace private sin, turn into public sin, turn into contagious sin, to turn into church sin. You're corrupting, and and instead of helping others, you're making them worse. This is another reality, I think, again, that it should put a little bit of kind of humility in our lives to think about that. Our failings, if we're not careful, if we're not aware of them, if we don't treat them with humility, we pass them on.
This is easily the most devastating part of being a pastor. Right? They always joke about it in, in pastoral conferences and stuff, and they say that the church takes on the pastor's personality after seven years. And I thought you wanted your pastor to stay for seven years. That's not encouraging. It's not encouraging at all to think that our failings and our weaknesses are so easily spread. Woe number three. This one's technical. This is the one that when you read it on your own, you go, yeah, I'm out. That doesn't make any sense. Woe to you blind guides who say, if anyone swears by the temple, then it's nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he's bound by his oath. You blind fools, which is greater, the gold of the temple he's made, the gold sacred, you say. So what's happening is is a situation where men were taking holy vows, but were playing word games to get out of their vows. So you would have situations where people would come in and uh, swear by the temple, but be able to get out of it because the gold of the temple demands a better sacrifice. It was basically just a word game. It's what we watch kind of politicians often do, you know, it depends on what the word is, is. It's a way of saying, look, I know words mean a thing, except when they don't mean a thing. It's a way of being able to say, yes, I said this, but I didn't really say that. I kind of really meant this. And it's intriguing how you're seeing kind of a progression in these woes from things that we can kind of easily throw stones at and be angry about to the things that kind of increasingly get more uncomfortable for us. Well, number one, closing off the kingdom of heaven. Well, that's perhaps not a thing I tend to think of doing often. Well, number two, my sin is contagious. Well, I never really think about that because honestly, I don't really think I'm a sinner. So why would my sin be contagious? Well, number three, this one here is that the people of God are to have a single face is what it's used in the Greek. We're not to be two-faced. We're not supposed to be speaking out of two sides of our mouths. We're supposed to speak plainly, and when we speak plainly, to let our words mean what they mean. Friends, everyone in this room that's a member of this church or pastor of any kind has had to take holy vows to the Lord uh, in obedience to Him as part of joining the church. You have five to be a member of this church. I think the elders, I think, have seven. I didn't look it up. I think I have nine or 11. I can't remember. The reality of the matter is it's so easy for us to, when we disagree with things, to be like, well, I mean, yes, I promise to submit myself to the government of the church, but what I meant was I promise to submit myself as long as I agree. Or I promise to submit myself to the government of the church as long as they follow my convictions. Or as long as I win votes. 
It's so easy for us to want to kind of parse out our words, to try to kind of nuance our way. Instead of just being open and honest. So that you look at a Christian and you know what they say is true and right. You realize that if we were to honestly hold this, we're going to be some of the most easily manipulated people on the planet because everybody's going to know our opinion. They're going to know what we hold, and if they want to take advantage of us, they absolutely can do that. Right? We're watching this play out currently right now in Afghanistan right? with our brothers and sisters, the Christians there who have actually been willing to say that they're Christians and now being able to be hunted door to door. We're honest with an open face. 23 and 24, this one I, I think perhaps might actually pertain a bit more even to our denomination and certainly to those in the Reformed tradition. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected weightier matters of the law like justice, mercy, and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. See, the law commanded that you tithe uh, on your income. Uh, and in fact, it wasn't just confined to kind of monetary income. They had the three great elements, grain, new wine, and oil. You required to tithe on those. But the Pharisees, in an effort to put kind of boundaries around everything, said, well, we're not just going to tithe on grain, new wine, and oil. We're going to tithe on even the little herbs that grow in our garden. So when you have your little rosemary plant there on the counter, we're going to tithe on part of the rosemary leaves, whatever that means. And instead of focusing on things that are far more difficult, that are far less tangible and far more important, we're going to focus on the little things that can make us feel good about ourselves. We're going to focus on the, the little minor things that give us a metric whereby we can say that I'm one of the good guys and they're one of the bad guys. We focus on the things that will make us feel better about ourselves. You see, what the Pharisees have done here is they've taken two good things. Notice Jesus says this, right? Both of these you ought to have done without neglect. You should have done both. But they've inverted the importance they took something that on a scale of 1 to 10 was a 9 and they moved it to a 2 and something on a scale of 1 to 10 that was a 2 and moved it to be a 9. They've got their values backwards. They've got their priorities all upside down. And friends, this is one where it's like, ooh, right? That hurts, doesn't it? I mean, if you're going to be honest... Jesus is saying, woe to the bad guys, because the bad guys take good elements of God's law and reverse them to take the things that make us look good and move them to the top. Think about the person, don't, do not say this out loud, think about the person that you're most angry with right now, and then honestly can you say that that's not what you've just done with them? Now, some of you will be able to say, yeah, I'm, I'm mad at them for very just cause or whatever. If we're going to be candid, most of us, the reason why we're angry with them is because we flipped it. 
We've taken something that is good but far down the list of importance and we've elevated it way up to the top. It's something we speak about at session level all the time, how, how easy it is to get distracted by these small and unimportant things. Not saying they're not good, but saying they are small. Jesus then applies this even further in verses 25 and 26 with the next woe. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they're full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside. This is talking about the ceremonial cleanness that the Pharisees would have to do. They, They followed all sorts of kind of ceremony, all sorts of ritual in order to showcase uh, their holiness. And one of the areas in which they were obviously failing is Jesus is saying, you're, you're using ritual to make the outside look good, but you're leaving the inside untouched. Right? It would be like my, my cup here, if I left tea in it for a week and you start getting the fuzzy things growing and how gross that is, and I took it back there to the sink in the kitchen and I, I dumped out the fuzzy things and I just wiped the outside with a cloth and then put more tea in it and brought it up here for church on Sunday. Mm. right fuzzy and delicious ah. right? no good that's no good at all but you see what they're doing is, is it's the same concept as the previous woe just applied where the previous one was saying look what you've done is you've taken uh, things of lesser importance and you've elevated them not only have you taken things of lesser importance and you've elevated them but you've begun to place an increasing emphasis on the execution of external ritual. And you say, well, we're, we're Protestants. We don't have ritual. Yeah, we do. Absolutely we do. Absolutely 100% we do. And uh, if we don't uh, have it, it's usually because we're just unaware of the ways that we have it. And some of you grew up in circumstances where if you didn't have daily devotionals, that specific term, if you didn't have daily devotionals, then you weren't a good Christian. Some of you, I grew up, or at least part of my time growing up was a part of the PCA, where if you didn't have daily devotionals in the morning, you weren't a successful Christian. It had to be in the morning. That was the amazing thing. Your job starts at three in the morning. Well, tough. Better get up at one. Okay. No, certainly reading the Bible is good. Having a time to help cultivate devotion to the Lord is good, but I'm fairly certain there's no command that says you have to have a devotional. I'm fairly certain there's no command that says you have to have it in the morning before you go to work. Friends, these are the areas too where I think most of us will get the most angry with each other. In preparation for this building, I used this application off and on for a year in various formats and various sermons and various ways, but where we're taking the rituals, the unspoken rituals that we use to evaluate good and bad, that we use to judge each other, and we're imposing them on each other without any biblical grounds to do so. Twenty-seven, twenty-eight. take that one step further. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, 
You're all like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of gross. Uh, And this actually describes most likely the exact time of year that they're there. Uh, This is, as Passover is happening, all of Israel would come into Jerusalem, and because of the Passover meal, everybody had to be ceremonially clean. You couldn't afford to be unclean. So one of the things that they would do, I read this somewhere, this is not original to me, one of the things they would do is they would take powdered lime, which is white, and throw it all on the outside of the tombs so that you would know not to go in. And it's not just a cave. Remember, it's not like mausoleums. They basically took bodies and chucked them into little alcoves, little caves in the sides of hills. And you don't want your kids going to play in there. You don't want to accidentally stumble in there. So you'd mark everything with this kind of wonderful white uh, powder so that everything looked nice. And so when you kind of wander into Jerusalem, all of the cemeteries would be marked off. All of the burial grounds would be marked off with these wonderful white caves. It'd be very quite, quite lovely. That's why Jesus says even it's beautiful. But the point is, <laughs> they've ultimately taken religion and just made it external. That's, that's really kind of the, the capstone condemnation, is that they've made religion a thing that happens only on the outside. You Pharisees have spent your days and your years and all of your energy cultivating an appearance that looks good on the outside, but is dead on the inside. And again, the pastor's heart breaks on a passage like this. By God's mercy, a pastor of church now that's on the larger side of average in the PCA. Our magic number of the PCA is about 95 members. We're over 95. It puts us in the larger half of the denomination. That's God's mercy. Praise the Lord for that. That's really fun. But as we grow in numbers, it grows in opportunity to have seats that are filled with people that look great on the outside, that behave, perhaps are even confessional, might have their daily or even family practices shaped by the truth of the gospel, but never have their heart impacted. People that look the part, but never act it. And I'm amazed, honestly, that this is where Jesus takes his list of bad guys. It's not Hitler. It's not Stalin. He doesn't preach a sermon against serial abusers. He preaches a sermon against people who look really good and have dead hearts. I find that just overwhelming, honestly. That of all of the categories of enemies that God himself could have preached a sermon on, the one that he preaches a sermon on here is people who look good but are dead on the inside. At which point I have to wonder, like, did Jesus grow up in South Carolina in the 80s? 
is this his experience too. Now you notice we've stopped at six, and I'm really it's because I'm setting you up for the the sucker punch that Jesus gives, which is this. Many of us, honestly, as we've been listening to this sermon, it's certainly been easy to think about it as preaching it, is to have people in mind. (laughs) Yeah, it's probably that person, that person, that person. I'll scroll through church social and just look at the picture directory, right? Can mark off, yeah, that one, man, won't surprise me, right? Uh, That one, yep, mm, they drive me crazy. The interesting thing, though, is how actually Jesus ends the sermon in verse 29. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have done this. And in doing so, you say, you're the problem. You're the problem. That's ultimately what they're getting to. Their excuse is they're saying, well, if if we had been there, we would have been the solution, not the problem. And Jesus says, and that's the exact point. That's the exact point. That, that's the exact issue. Is that when it comes time to deal with sin and to deal with the brokenness of the soul and to deal with uh, clean cleanliness and to deal with holy living, uh, it's so easy for us to be preoccupied with someone else instead of with me. To be captivated with your sin instead of mine. To be preoccupied with your repentance instead of mine. To be frustrated and aggravated and driven up the wall and down the other with your failings instead of my own. To have a Christianity that has all of the form of Christianity, but none of the power. You see, friends, if you were listening to this sermon and paying attention at all, there's probably a good chance that at some point along the way somebody popped into your brain. You're like, yep, that was for them. I wish they were paying attention. Or I wish so-and-so was here. I wish this relative were there. I wish that person were here. They could hear this. It'd make them better. Yeah, that's the problem. It's interesting, that's actually where Jesus gets the most harsh. You serpents, you brood of vipers, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Wow. I mean, that is as harsh as it gets. And what does Jesus do it for? For people who are unwilling to examine their own part of the problem. People who are unwilling to consider their own soul who are actually thinking of themselves more highly than they ought. Thinking they're part of the solution and not the problem. I was reading actually just an article this week providentially came up on this where a person was speaking um, specifically to a, a very particular branch of Christianity, but was saying, and I'm going to summarize for American Christianity, 
is to say the problem with American Christianity is that we don't know how to read our Bibles because we always read ourselves as the hero and we read the other members of the church as the villains. We really have those flopped, like flip-flopped, right? We're not the heroes, friends. That's Christ and certainly an opportunity to be thankful for his church. Well, so what do we do with this, right? Jesus is certainly not saying that Christians can ever go to hell. That's not what he's meaning. Instead, what he's done is he's described what the bad guys look like. And the good news is that the Bible is very clear for us what we're supposed to do. Any time that we find ourselves looking like the bad guys, we confess our sins. Right? That's why we print it in the bulletin every week. It's to give you a list of prayers, things that you can take home and help put words to your own thoughts, to confess your role in being the problem, to confess your lack of warmth, to confess how... Uh, Easily we are prone to be hypocritical. It's to confess sin. And why do we confess it? Well, we confess our sins because our God is slow to anger. He is abounding in steadfast love and He forgives freely to us at the expense of Christ Jesus. I'm going to be honest. Again, I've pastored long enough now to know there are some of us in the room that really need to do some soul work here. There are some of us in the room that really need to take some time and think about how because we've been lazy or because we've been prideful or because we've had our feelings hurt, or because we've been angry, or because we've been bitter, or because whatever excuse we have, we've allowed ourselves to live in a way that looks like the bad guys. And honestly, friends, if the Holy Spirit's working on your conscience, you need to think about that. Go to the Lord in confession. If you need to, go to your brother or your sister in confession. Go in repentance. Ask for forgiveness. Why? Because the Lord loves us, and I love how this is how actually the, the section ends. 37, Jesus says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, bad news, right? The city that kills the prophets and stones that are sent to you. But then he expresses his heart. Now, granted, they've kind of missed their window here and destruction is coming. We're going to get to that next week. But look at, th this is what the heart of Jesus looks like. How often would I have gathered your children together like a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you weren't willing? Right? How often, like a mama hen, I would just gather you together like baby chicks? How often, like, you know, a mom would wrap her kids up in the skirts of her robe to protect her. How much I would do that. But Jerusalem, you were unwilling. May it be that we would be a people of repentance, finding forgiveness in Christ Jesus, and hope in his good gospel.
Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for hard words in Scripture as well as easy. Thank you that we have promises of grace, even as we have warnings of destruction. We prom- uh, thank you that we have promises of forgiveness, even as we have explanations of sin. Oh Lord, might we see Jesus, in whose name we pray, amen.